C.S. Lewis famously said, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. End quote. <clears throat> this quote comes from the preface to Lewis's work titled The Screwtape Letters, which I've told you about before. It's a book which is actually a compilation of letters recording an insightful correspondence between Screwtape, who is a senior demon in hell, and his incompetent nephew Wormwood, who is a Wet behind the years, young, new tempter. All of the letters are from Screwtape to Wormwood and have as their subject a man in England who was recently converted to Christianity known only as the patient. And in these letters, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, giving him advice and instruction on how to tempt and snare and stumble the faith of the patient. Early on, the patient is growing in spirituality, and they know that can't be reversed, but Screwtape advises Wormwood to corrupt his spirituality with intellectualism, whispering his thoughts that Jesus is not really divine. He's just a historical figure. Well, the patient does not deny Christ, but Wormwood is successful in instilling in him a great deal of spiritual pride. Soon thereafter, World War II breaks out in England. And Wormwood rejoices at the potential death of his patient. But Screwtape tells him, no, no, it's, it's much better that he is kept alive. Because then he will succumb to the spiritual wasteland of middle age. As his youthful hopes vanish, so will his faith. Or if the patient becomes successful and prosperous, all the better. And this will only cement him in worldly concerns and remove all need of God in his life. Their goal is to increase attachment to earthly concerns. And this only becomes easier with the patient's age. In the end, the demons hope that when the patient sees the remains of a human body in a bombed out house during World War II, he will see life for what it really is, a meaning, meaningless house of horrors, and he will abandon all faith. But in that moment, just the opposite happens. And the demons know that in that moment, the patient is forever beyond their reach. Wormwood has failed, and as a result, Screwtape will consume him. For, he says, the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. All of this, of course, is fictional. But unlike Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, the Screwtape Letters reflects a very real world of angels and demons. An unseen world of demons does exist, and their mission, much like that of young Wormwood, is to blind the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from the faith, or to attack to weaken the faith of believers, rendering them as ineffective for God as possible. And for the past two weeks, we have taken a little detour from our normal events in the Gospel of Mark. And we've done a little study on what the Bible says about this whole world of demons. Mark has been our inspiration in the Gospel of Mark. Several times we've already encountered demons and demon possession. And seeing this unseen world unmasked brings to the surface so many questions. And you combine this with the widespread error and ignorance on the issue, it just really 
forced us to do a little study on what does the Bible really say about this world of, of demons? We've, we've covered a lot of ground the first two weeks. Today we're going to finish up our study on what the Bible says about them. Specifically, we've been aiming to, to look at 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. And so far, we 17 questions have been posed and 17 questions we've sought Scripture's answer for. And today, as you can guess, we will cover the remaining three. Now, like I did last time, though, i got to start off with a, a, a brief recap just because I really don't want those who may not have been here the past couple weeks to be totally and helplessly lost and confused. So what have we covered so far? In short, what have we seen about what the Bible says about, about demons so far? Well, we start off with what demons are. And biblically, demons are angels. They are fallen angels. Those who rebelled against God and persist in that rebellion, opposing man, opposing God, opposing the truth, for believers, demons can externally oppress them. They can tempt you, test you, persecute you. But we found very clearly they cannot steal your salvation. They cannot possess you. And that brought up this huge topic of demon possession, which we encountered in the Gospel of Mark. This is where a demon is indwelling, in control, irresistible. It's as if the person is enslaved, which is why deliverance is needed. And this brings us to Jesus. And we see him in the Gospels. He is delivering those who were possessed. With just a word, with full authority, he casts the demon out. And it's forced to leave. And Jesus gave that same authority to his apostles. We see them doing the same thing. Nobody today, however, has that same delegated authority. Just like no one today is, is healing like Jesus did. These sign gifts serve the purpose of authenticating the authority of the message of the apostles. And that authority now rests with Scripture. But although the apostles are gone, demons aren't. Demons still exist. Demon possession is still a reality. And so if we can't do what Jesus did, well, what are we supposed to do? And the answer you will get from most people, how, how do you deal with a demon? The answer you will get from most people is, well, you perform an exorcism. And so last time we spent most of our time talking about what, what that really means, what that is, what is an exorcism. An exorcism is some ceremony or ritual involving incantations or artifacts used to drive the demon out. And this concept has really been ingrained into our mind from all the movies that come out every year now. It's just part of our culture. If you ask the average person, how would you deal with a demon? They would tell you, well, I, I guess you would perform an exorcism. But not so fast, because we found in the Bible that exorcism isn't there. Not in the Bible. It's not biblical. It's not taught anywhere. And, and also, Jesus was not an exorcist. He and the disciples did not perform a single exorcism. But wait, I thought he cast out demons all the time. Well, he did. But as we studied, you have to understand the vast difference between what Jesus did and what people do today under the title of exorcism. They are not the same. In reality, this whole ritual of exorcism is a, a pagan practice that some 
try and legitimize through a mishandling of Scripture. The idea of performing some ritual or reciting some incantation or even throwing the name of Jesus around like it's a magical charm, it's not in the Bible. It's not a biblical practice. It is to be avoided. Nothing like exorcism, uh, like we see it today, is prescribed for us anywhere in the Bible. There's not a single prescription to do this anywhere. We finished up last time then talking about these people. So many people still have these vivid experiences, though, where they say, well, no, it, it works. You, you can say exorcism isn't biblical, but, but I've seen it. It works. I saw it with my own eyes. This is real. And this led us to believe, or rather to talk about, letting experience be your guide. I don't necessarily doubt people's experiences. It may be true. You had a real experience. But I do ask, how do you know for sure that your experience came from God? How can you prove that? How can you prove that your experience came from God? Maybe because you use the name of Jesus. You cast that demon out in the name of Jesus. And maybe because you got results. It, it worked. The person was freed. Well, the problem with that is what we found in Matthew chapter 7, if you remember, where we found this whole group of, of these people who called themselves Christians. They called Jesus Lord. They even cast out demons in his name. But what happens to them? Jesus rejects them and sentences them to hell. And this, is, this was shocking. How, how can this be? Well, they were never truly born again. They had religion, sure, but they had no real faith relationship in Christ, with Christ. They had Theirs were false works. Theirs was a false faith. This doesn't mean their experiences of casting out demons was false, though. It only means it didn't come from God. And you combine this with Matthew 12, where Jesus taught us a significant truth that demons can leave an unbeliever at will. They can just leave if they want to, and they can come back if they want to. And that's huge. Remember, the name of their game is deception. And so the conclusion follows pretty obviously. You have these unbiblical exorcisms today. Do, do they work? Is there some real experience going on? And the answer is, well, maybe. Maybe there is something real happening. But if so, it's because the demon is leaving willingly in order to carry on the whole deception. They want to lead you to buy into this pagan practice of exorcism. They want to keep you away from the gospel because that's the real power of God for salvation, for change. This is where we ended last time. We spent most of our time really debunking all of the wrong ways people are confronting demons and waging spiritual warfare today. Not found in the Bible. That was our focus last week. Today, though, we want to wrap this whole discussion up and we want to actually fill in what the Bible says, prescribes what you should do. What does God actually say about what you need to do to wage a very real spiritual warfare? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you want to know what God really expects of you and prescribes for you, then these final three questions are for you. And we're just going to pick up now where we left off. And again, if you're keeping track, this is question 18 of our 20 questions, and that it is this. How are believers to identify demon possession today? 
We have to throw this one in there because we haven't talked about it. How are believers to identify demon possession today? We talked about it back then, but what about today? There's, there's a lot of false diagnosis going around. So what does the Bible really say? Well, first, don't identify demon possession by sickness alone. It's not just sickness. Demons are not responsible for all sickness. Most sickness and disease is simply the result of us living in a fallen world. And back in Christ's day, they were fully aware of the differences between demon possession and just sickness. They knew and could understand the difference between the two. So it's not just sickness alone. Also, you don't identify demon possession by sinfulness. It's not just sinfulness. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul, he gives this long list of, of these really wicked sins, these evil deeds that even Christians can commit. And, and who's responsible for them? Does he blame demons for this? No. It's just your own flesh. It's you. These are the deeds of the flesh, your sin nature. You're responsible. So that means if you see someone who's extremely wicked, that does not mean they must be demon-possessed. No, they, they're just a sinner like you and me. Demon possession is not just sickness. It's not just sinfulness. And the question is, how do we really identify it then? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us how to diagnose demon possession, but when you study its occurrences in the Bible, which is all you can do, we can assemble some indicators. So demon possession, there are 14 examples of demon possession in the Bible. That's, that's actually all, the 14 found in only four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And you put those together, you study those inductively, you, you come away with three indicators of demon possession. And these would still apply today. Three indicators of demon possession. Simply from what we can observe, that's all we have to go by. The first indicator is some kind of physical affliction or ailment, often extreme. And again, not all sickness is caused by demons. However, when a demon did possess someone, it came with this severe affliction, usually some sort of physical ailment. Demons brought about muteness, deafness, blindness, dumbness, seizures, self-mutilation. It appears that the demon was trying to, over time, destroy the person, literally, to kill them over time or to make them miserable. The second indicator is supernatural knowledge or strength. A supernatural knowledge or strength. We have examples of some, not all, but some persons who are demon-possessed in Scripture doing things that humans cannot ordinarily do or knowing things that humans cannot ordinarily know. For example, the Gerasene demoniac from Mark 5, he was breaking through metal chains like they were butter and he couldn't be subdued by a whole mob of people. And then there's this demon-possessed little girl in Acts chapter 16. And she was like a real, a real fortune teller. And it worked because the demon inside of her was giving her this clairvoyance, this information she wouldn't otherwise know. And this leads to the third indicator of demon possession, which is the distinct presence of another personality. The distinct presence of another personality. In the movies, you hear demon-possessed people, they, they start talking with this really deep voice, this evil, foreboding, 
snarling voice. Well, the Bible doesn't come with audio. So we don't know what they actually sounded like, if their voice boxes actually changed. However, the demons at times clearly took over and commanded control of a person's voice such that their lips were moving, but the demon was speaking, not the person. You see, us humans, we are formed of two parts, body and spirit. And for those who are demon-possessed, it's as if the evil spirit hijacks their body and their spirit is just enslaved in the background. Understand, whenever this other personality manifests itself, it's always rational, logical, coherent. Granted, the demons inside a person could drive them to a form of madness, but whenever the demon spoke, he was always logical, rational. We wouldn't say ordinary, but you get the point. And this is a very big distinction to make because that's not the case with schizophrenics, people with mental disabilities. That's not how they are. This is a difference here. Those two are not to be confused. If someone were to get into a really bad car accident and they had severe brain damage, you might say, sadly, the, the lights are on, but no one's home anymore. But with demon possession, it's different. The lights are on, someone else is home. That's the difference. A purposeful, evil personality is residing within. This is what they use in Scripture. This is all we have to go by today. To identify demon possession today, you would look for all or some combination of these three indicators. Physical affliction plus supernatural knowledge or strength plus another evil personality in control. This is what we can piece together from Scripture. Remember this, though. In Christ's day, demon possession was always obvious. It was always pretty obvious. We have unbelievers and Gentiles having no trouble rightly identifying a person as being demon-possessed. It was not a mystery. It didn't take a special gift. There was no level of super discernment needed. It appeared to be pretty obvious. This might make you wonder, though, if if demon possession is so obvious, well, then why don't we see more of it? Where it's really crystal clear, okay, that person is definitely possessed. Why don't we see this more often? It seems like in the day of Jesus, it was like every fifth person. So where are they if it's so obvious? And I want to say this. I want to throw this in here. You should not expect to see the same concentration of demon possession that you see in the Gospels. You shouldn't expect to see the same concentration as you see in the Gospels. Why is that? Well, how many examples of demon possession are there in the entire 1,500 plus years of Old Testament? Zero. Not a single Old Testament example. How many examples of demon possession are there after Acts chapter 19? Zero. So, why do you think all of our biblical examples of demon possession are squeezed into this very little time frame and little place surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus and the early church fears after that. Think that's a coincidence? No, I don't think so. You see, Satan and his fallen angels, they knew full well who Jesus was, that he was coming to overthrow their dominion over the earth. They were not going to lie down for this. They persist in their rebellion. And it seems clear that the forces of darkness rallied at that time and that place to oppose the work of Jesus, his kingdom, the spread of the gospel. Today, 
Satan and demons, they still work. They are still opposing God's kingdom. They still rebel. However, you should not expect to see the same density of opposition as we see in Palestine in the day of Christ. That was the peak of battle, and that intensity won't be matched until the tribulation, right before Christ's second coming. You see that in Revelation as well. We'll also say this. During our our first lesson here, we explored the very legitimate um, link between occultism and idol worship and demon possession. There's a real link there, according to the Old Testament. I think this is why we hear fewer examples and stories of demon possession from Europe and today now even America, which are becoming more atheistic. And you hear a lot more stories coming out of Africa and Asia and South America, which still have a lot of idolatrous people groups where this type of thing would you'd see more of it. All in all, though, demon possession is still a reality. It still is. And whether you have encountered it or not, you still must be careful to avoid false diagnosis and use biblical discernment given the only pictures of demon possession we have in Scripture. It's all we have to go by, so we'll stick with this, these three indicators. So that's how you would identify it. Question number 19 is, is this then, how are believers to deal with demon possession today? We're still on topic with this, this big idea of possession because we see it so much in, in the Gospel of Mark. So if, if you were to see it and to encounter someone, well, what would you do? How are believers to deal with demon possession today? And we've already spent plenty of time exploring all the things you shouldn't do. You can yell at the demon all you want, tell it to leave. It doesn't have to listen to you. You can throw around the name of Jesus like a magical charm. You don't have the personal authority to over that demon, and Jesus didn't give you his like he did to the apostles. You can hold up a cross. You can use some holy water. Those are utterly powerless. So what do you do? Well, here's the answer you've been waiting for. You ready? You pray, and you share the gospel. That's it. That's all you do. Pray. Pray for them. Pray that God would deliver them. Share the gospel with them if possible. And that's it. You satisfied? I know probably half or more of you are not satisfied with that answer. You're you're thinking, that that can't be it. There must be more to it than that. that. That sounds too simple. That just can't be right. Well, look, we've already seen you're not going to find anything more from Scripture. There are zero prescriptions for dealing with demon-possessed persons as a special category. There's nothing, not a single prescription. But I want to help you know, put you at ease and, and help you understand that this is the way. So let, let's talk about this a little bit more. First, we know this. We know that demons can only possess unbelievers. So I want you to think about the similarities between your average unbeliever and your demon-possessed unbeliever. What are the similarities? Are they both spiritually dead? Yes. Are they both enslaved to sin? Yes. Are they both blinded by Satan? Yes. Are they both awaiting judgment and the sentence of hell? Yes. Are they both unable to save and deliver themselves? Yes. Are they both both lost apart from God's intervention? Yes. And are they both operating in the domain of darkness? Yes, they are. And you see where I'm going with this. 
ultimately both of them share the same deeper spiritual problem, which is just spiritual death, being separated from God because of their sin. Whether you're possessed or not, they're both dead. And they both have the same ultimate need, which is for God to save them, for Christ to deliver them. And which of the two is worse? Which of them is more lost? Some of you are thinking, well, the demon-possessed guy is more lost. But he's not. They're equally lost. And sure, the demon-possessed guy may be more afflicted. He may suffer more, be more diseased. But he's not more lost. He is just as lost as the unpossessed person. Because you have to get it. They're both spiritually dead. When you're dead, you're dead. There's no such thing as being more dead than the other person. I mean, if you're both dead, you're equally dead. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That verse is not talking about demon possession. It's not. But it is speaking of Satan, who is regarded as the God of this world, functionally. And what's he doing? Through him and his demons, he is blinding the minds of all unbelievers so that they will not perceive the gospel to be saved. And you might associate such a blinding only with the possessed. Yeah, well, they're blind, of course. But no, this verse says everyone is spiritually blinded by Satan and demons. That used to be us. And this being the case, if there is an outside evil spiritual force hindering our salvation and we can't save ourselves, then what do we need? Well, we need an outside good spiritual force to remove the veil, to bring us to salvation, and that's God. God must step in, remove the veil from our eyes. And that's precisely what we see God doing when he draws someone to salvation. However, God has he's brought us in on his work of salvation. He's brought us in. He's made us responsible to administer the means of salvation. So, how are we called by God to reach the lost? Well, we pray. We share the gospel. That's it. We pray for them. We pray that God would open their eyes. We share the gospel with them that they might believe and that that's all we can do for them. We can't make someone believe. But this same solution applies those to those who are equally lost and demon-possessed. Same solution. The Bible does not treat them as a special category. You pray. Pray to God for them. Pray that God would intervene. Pray that he would cast the demon out. Pray that he would deliver them and free them. And if possible, share the gospel with them. You have to remember what we learned from Matthew 12 last week. That even if you had a demon and it's cast out, if you remain empty, meaning if you don't have Christ in you, if you don't have God's Spirit dwelling within you, there's nothing stopping that demon from coming back. And it will be worse for you. The point is, salvation is the only true, lasting, meaningful solution to demon possession. It's the only real answer 
Yeah, cast them out if you can, if you want, but unless they're brought, born again and brought to Christ, they're not really delivered. They're still dead. But if Christ moves in, trust me, the demon moves out. Why don't you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's a verse that is not about demon possession, but you'll see how very significant and relevant it is to what we're talking about. Maybe in case you're wondering about God's role in this, in this endeavor and our role, this verse will make it very clear. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This passage is not talking about demon-possessed people. It's talking about all unbelievers, and even worse, those who are opposing the truth, opponents to the truth. And, and how are we to deal with these, these hostile opponents? How are we to deal with them? Well, not in anger, not in rage, not in violence, not, not quarrelsome, but gently, patiently, kindly. It doesn't mean we're silent, though. No, we speak up, we offer a correction We speak the truth in love. We let the gospel fly. And that's really our only hope in their change. That God will intervene. He must. He must do that work. God must. What does it say? He must grant them repentance. That they may come to the knowledge of the truth. He must open their minds. And he must set them free from the devil's snare. And that's everyone. That was once us. Enslaved to the God of this world. All this goes to say that if you're lost, you're lost. Demon possessed or not, you're lost. And God must grant you repentance. God must intervene whether you're demon possessed or not. And if God wills, he will cast the demon out and send his spirit in. And our role then, it's, it's still quite simple. Pray for the person, share the gospel. In regards to the lost, that's all we're told to do. And in essence, for the lost. We pray for them. We share the gospel. And so what else do you need to worry about? I mean, after all, if God really expects us to do more with the demon-possessed, we're to treat them as a special category, you think he would have told us? Like, give us something. Give us a single instruction, a single prescription, but again, there's zero. It's not like God said this, you know, if you meet an unbeliever, Okay, then pray for them, share the gospel, sure. But if he happens to be demon-possessed, okay, then you need to do this. You need to say this little saying here, hold up your cross, you know, put the sign over them, and you know, do this. Nothing. There's none of that. We would expect some special instructions, but there are none anywhere. You pray, you share the gospel. Now, regarding sharing the gospel, though, you might wonder, well, what do you do if a person is so controlled by the demon that... It's like they're out of their right mind. They can't be reasoned with. They won't hear the gospel. What do you do? It's almost as if the demon has to leave first 
before the person can hear the gospel. And that, that may be. There are a few examples. Not everyone was like this, but there are a few examples in Scripture of someone who was so enslaved that they were out of their right mind, like the Gerasene demoniac from Mark chapter 5. And the demon had to be driven out before that man could be born again. And if this is the case, if you, if you encounter such a situation today, it just throws the emphasis back on prayer. That's it. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. You pray for them. You pray that God would deliver them, that God would cast the demon out and enable them to hear the gospel. We still today wield the privilege and power of prayer. And God himself, he still delivers people. There are not apostles working the signs and wonders, but God still is powerful and still works miracles every day. Talk about salvation, new birth. That's a miracle that God does every day and more. God still heals. God still delivers. And we can still access that through prayer alone. Even when the apostles cast out demons, was that their own power? No, they were relying on God's power, not theirs. And did they rely on God in prayer even still? Yes, they did. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed boy and the disciples could not cast it out. Remember that? This is the only record of their failure. And Jesus cast it out, no problem. But later the disciples ask him, like, hey, so why couldn't we cast that one out? What's the deal? And do you remember what he said? Mark 9.29, he said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. By saying this kind, Jesus may be indicating that this is a particularly powerful and evil kind of demon, one that refused to submit to their delegated authority. But God is still more powerful and they needed to resort to faith in their commission, that he commissioned them, and to prayer to God to cast it out. The demon would have left. And see, God, he still has that power and we still have the privilege of prayer. We may not have the special gifting that the apostles have, but we have prayer. And God still heals. He still delivers the sick and the oppressed, the, the possessed. And so we still pray. It's just totally parallel to someone who has a, a, a grave sickness. What would you do if, if your loved one, maybe a little child you learn has stage four cancer, which is almost the end? What would you do? Would you heal them? Well, you wish you could. You wish you could just gone. But you can't. You know you can't. That sign gift is gone. So what do you do? You pray for them. You pray that if the Lord wills, he would heal them and deliver them miraculously. And sometimes God does, as he wills. And the exact same thing applies to those who are demon-possessed. You can't cast them out like Jesus and the apostles did, but you can pray. So pray. God is powerful. There's a great story from Martin Luther, the reformer, about all this in action. It fits perfectly. He knew this woman who became very ill, suffered from these terrible seizures. Her hands and her feet bent into these horn shapes. Her body swelled, swelled up. She became ice cold. The doctors were unable to treat her. He feared it might be the work of a demon. So when Luther saw her, he did not rebuke the demon. But he prayed that God would rebuke the demon. And he prayed that God would cast the demon out. He turned toward, turned toward the bystanders. He said this, 
She is plagued of the devil and the body, but the soul is safe and shall be preserved. Therefore, let us give thanks to God and pray for her. And then he prayed this. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who has commanded us to pray for the sick, we beseech thee through Jesus Christ, thy only Son, that thou would deliver this thy servant from her sickness and from the hands of the devil. Spare, O Lord, her soul, which together with her body thou hast purchased and redeemed from the power of sin, of death, and of the devil. End quote. After this, the sick woman said, Amen. The night passed, and in the morning when she woke up and they went to her, she was delivered. She was cured, healed, normal. So what really happened here? What, what actually happened? Was, was a demon truly responsible for her sickness? Was she just ordinarily sick? We don't know. There, there's no telling. But you see, it doesn't matter because the response either way is the same. And Luther exemplified the right response. You beseech the Lord for mercy. Pray that God would intervene, that he would deliver. Remember, the prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. And we are righteous in Christ, perfectly righteous in Christ. Let this be your weapon against demon possession. This is what you do. You pray for them, that God would deliver them. And you pray earnestly in faith, depending on his power. And then share the gospel, if possible, that Christ may come in. Well, for the sake of this little study and our purposes here, we'll bring to an end this whole topic of demon possession, what the Bible says about demon possession. The concept of possession has been a significant topic for us. We've encountered it in Mark. We will see it again. So I trust and I hope that now you're, you're all better equipped to understand it, to make sense of it, both in Christ's day and even today if you were to see it and how to deal with it. We'll leave it at that. There's one last question to go now. And it brings the discussion back to us, to believers. Because after all, demon possession doesn't directly relate to believers. Believers can't be possessed. But believers can be oppressed, be tempted, tested, persecuted. There's still a real threat, even to believers, in a spiritual warfare. So the question now is, what do we do about that? What do we do about demon oppression? That is our 20th and final question in this study. How are believers to deal with demon oppression today? How are believers to deal with demon oppression today? A very real spiritual warfare rages on. You can be tempted by demons, persecuted by them, unseen. So how are you called to respond? Well, for the sake of time, we're going to laser in on the number one most significant passage in all of Scripture on spiritual warfare. That is found in Ephesians chapter 6. Just wondering if anyone knew. Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there now. We're going to spend a good time here. Ephesians chapter 6. And while you're turning, let me give you some background because you've you got to get this. This is actually quite significant. In the mid-AD 50s, Paul spent two years, an extended time, in the city of Ephesus. He was nurturing the baby church there. It was such a strategic city, such an important city, also such a challenging city. Christianity faced several opponents in Ephesus. 
and notably was this intense paganism and idol worship. Ephesus was a spiritually dark place. It housed the Temple of Artemis, one of these seven wonders of the ancient world. And the people in that city, they fiercely guarded the worship of their fertility goddess. Additionally, the practice of magic and the occult was rampant in Ephesus. The, the sale of magic books and spells was big business. I mean, back then, equivalent, multi-million dollar business. It was huge. And finally, Ephesus totally bought into emperor worship. This is where they worshipped the Roman emperor as the son of God. And they built not one, but three temples to the emperor in Ephesus. And all this involvement in idolatry and the occult no doubt explains why Ephesus had such a concentration of demonic activity. You read Acts chapter 19. Paul, he encountered several demon-possessed people in Ephesus and he cast them out, but they were like right and left. It was a spiritually dark place. Ephesus even had its own team of Jewish exorcists. They're like the local Ghostbusters. Read about their failure in Acts 19. They were not very successful. They tried to throw around the name of Jesus. didn't work out for them. But the point is, there was a lot of spiritual warfare in Ephesus. It was a seemingly demon-infested place with all of its occult and idolatry going on. Now, several years later, Paul writes to the church this little letter called Ephesians. And he gives them lots of instructions tailored just for them so naturally, you would expect Paul to address this huge issue of spiritual warfare. And he does. He does, in a big way. Which is great. You're thinking, finally, finally, some direct revelation, how we deal with demons, especially given the background of Ephesus. You know, they need to hear this. And what do you expect Paul to say to these Ephesians? You kind of expect him to say, like, he's going to tell you how to cast out demons. Like he did while he was in Ephesus. This is how you do it. You do what I did when I was there. You you might be thinking he's going to give you some pointers on how to battle the demons. Okay, here's what you need. You need to hold up the cross. You need to say this little saying right here. And you go through this ritual and they'll they'll go away. You expect him to give some pointers because he casts out demons in Ephesus. Something. But surprisingly, Paul does not mention casting out demons at all. Not, Not once. Here or anywhere. He does mention demons. And he does mention spiritual warfare, but it comes in a way that you may not think. Let's read this whole passage first, and then we'll go back, we'll comment on it. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now this is pretty interesting. And Paul makes our enemy crystal clear here. It's not flesh and blood. It's not a human enemy. It's a heavenly enemy. The descriptions in verse 12, they're all used of demons elsewhere. This is made explicit in verse 11 where he calls out the leader of the demons, the prince of demons, the devil. Their desire is to take us down, to make us stumble, to pierce our faith with their flaming arrows of temptation. In our prescribed response, here's the prescription, finally. Our response is what? To defend. This is all defense. All of it. Stand your ground. Stand firm. Three times. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. There's no offensive here. Even the sword is to be used defensively. There's no mention of a counteroffensive, no mention of going on the attack, no mention of battling demons, no mention of rebuking demons, no mention of casting out demons. It's all stand firm, defend. And what makes this command to stand firm so significant is that it, it breaks from the rest of Ephesians. Let me point this out to you just briefly. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is rattling off these commands, these instructions for the believers on how to live rightly in the Lord. And he uses this metaphor five times, this metaphor to walk. Five times he uses this metaphor to walk. This is how you are to walk in Christ, which means this is how you are to live in Christ. This metaphor implies activity, be diligent, be working. Move in this direction. This is the direction God wants you to go. Walk this way. So five times in chapters 4 and 5, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk no longer as the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. So chapters 4 and 5. Five times. It's deliberate. It splits it up. Very structured. Then you get to chapter 6. And he says one of the most important subjects for last especially for the Ephesians, the subject of spiritual warfare. And by now, we're expecting Paul to say something like, you know, walk in warfare, or walk in power, walk in might. But we don't get it. There's no more walking. Walking's over. Instead, he switches metaphors, and instead of walking, he says, stand. Stand firm. Three times. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's time to stand your ground. This is how you deal with spiritual warfare. There's no walking here. It's all standing. Resist, defend. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. Consistent with Scripture, James said the same thing. James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter said the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. It's all consistent. What's the answer? To resist. Well, how exactly do you resist? What makes Ephesians 6 so great is that he tells us crystal clear how you resist. So how do you resist? It's by wearing the armor of God. 
That's how you resist. And this is, this is quite huge for you to realize. The means of defense that God has given you is His armor. And it, it's strong. It's flaming arrow-proof. And this is what armor is for, after all. What do you use armor for? It's not for offense. It's for defense. You use it to defend yourself in battle. And Paul isn't describing anything, anything offensive here. There's no holy hand grenade. There's no righteous flamethrower. All this armor, they're all defensive. And they cover you from head to toe. You're set. Now, when you study this armor, a lot of preachers like to, to split it up and then narrow in on each of these six elements, each piece of armor. And you could do that. You could do that. There's nuances to learn in each one. However, when you look at this holistically, each piece of armor is synonymous. Have you ever thought about that before? Each piece of this armor is synonymous. Each is describing the same thing in just a different way. I mean, look at the operative words. There's six pieces of armor, and what are they describing? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are all words or phrases describing the same thing. These are overlapping concepts. And we can say they're all just different ways of describing the gospel. But that's really what it is. The armor of God is just the gospel. It's your salvation by faith, by the truth, by the word of God, by the righteousness of Christ. That's your armor. Your God-given defense is the truth of the gospel and your salvation. And this is so big for you to get. I mean, And when you understand this, how do you wage spiritual warfare? How do you actually defend? What are the commands here? Verse 13, take up. Verse 11, put on. That's what you do. You take it up and you put it on. You must wear the armor of God and then you will be able to resist. After all, what good is a suit of armor if you leave it home and then go to battle? It's not doing anything for you. You must take it up and put it on. Each and every day, he says, verse 10, to be strong in the Lord, you must take up and put on the gospel. The fact that you are commanded to do this means it doesn't happen automatically. And if you fail in your effort, you are open to temptation and to stumbling. You must take it up and put it on. And then practically, okay, what does that really look like? It's quite simple. You remember and depend on the truth of God's word. That's it. That's what it looks like to take it up and put it on. Remember and depend on the truth, the gospel, your salvation, the word, righteousness, faith, same thing. Satan's power over sin and death has already been conquered. The war, it's over. We already won. Christ won. But the devil still schemes. We are still assaulted. Our faith can be stumbled, but we overpower these attacks through the Word. Battles of spiritual temptation still exist, like young wormwood, but you can overcome them simply by what? By trusting in God and relying on His truth. You must recall God's truth, bring it to mind, and then cling to it, submit to it, 
obey it, and you will be able to resist. Just like Jesus, when tempted by Satan, he wielded the armor and resisted the devil through the word. You have to realize this. This is a truth versus deception war. It's an unseen war. And you know where the battleground is? Your mind. The spiritual battleground is over your mind. Let me prove that to you. The enemy will plant deceiving thoughts in your mind and you will either succumb to them or resist through God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's it. That's spiritual warfare. That through Satan and demons, your mind will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And this is why to overcome, you must take up arms against falsehood in your mind. This, is, this battle is waged in your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through five, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And what are those fortresses? Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The imagery is of a castle siege, but the battlefield is the fortress of your mind. Your mind is the castle. And will you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ or will you let the enemy persuade your thoughts to him to open the gates to come in? This is a mental battle, and to win requires aligning your mind, your thoughts to God's mind, to God's will. Satan and demons seek to distract us from Christ and deceive mankind through worldly wisdom. So our side, it's pretty simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. Take on rather take up and put on the truth of the gospel every day. Take up, put on, remind yourself the truth of the gospel every day. Romans 12:2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. In Ephesians chapter 6, if there's any place, any place in all of Scripture that we would finally see some instruction to, to battle demons, to speak to them, to rebuke them, to cast them out, it's got to be here in Ephesians 6, but it's not. That doesn't mean we're left powerless. Spiritual warfare is real, and we have, we have a better answer to deal with oppression from Satan and demons. It is to stand firm. In the truth, daily, remembering, waging that war, speaking truth to your own mind and not letting those thoughts of deception creep in. And again, it's no coincidence that this instruction is followed up by an admonition to pray. If you're still in Ephesians 6, look at that next verse. Verse 18 comes right after. Right after he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times 
in the Spirit. And with this in view. With what in view? With spiritual warfare in view. Be on the alert without perseverance and petition for all the saints. So, what do you know? Again, dependence on the gospel and prayer is the answer. You pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. But you pray. C.S. Lewis rightly observed that Christians can fall into two errors concerning demons, either pretending they don't exist or becoming obsessed with them. And we want to avoid both. Just as a final thought in this three-parter we've finished now, don't fall into spiritual warfare chaos. It's real. Our warfare is real, but we are not called to obsess over demons. We can't even see them. This is an enemy you can't see. You don't even know when they're really attacking you. You know, Tell me this. You're being tempted. So how do you know whether that temptation is coming from your own flesh or from a demon? How do you know? You don't. You can't know. There's no way for you to know. But you know what? Who cares? It doesn't matter. We're never told to speculate because the response to temptation, it's always the same. You do the same thing. You win the war in your mind. You stand firm. You remember the truth of the word and you escape. You resist in the evil day. So that's the answer to our question. How do you respond to demon oppression? It's by running the race of faith and standing firm in the faith at the same time. You equip yourself with the truth. You cling to it. You hold it close. You remind yourself of the gospel daily. Each morning as you wake up, as you proceed through the day, just rehearse the truth of the gospel, what God did for you, and and thereafter, in your mind, which is the battleground. Remind yourself every day that you're a sinner. You are a sinner. You are worthy of judgment. You're not righteous. You, You do not meet God's standard. You cannot earn your way to heaven by yourself. You have no chance. You you deserve a judgment. But Christ, He's real. He's real. He came. He's God. He's man. He lived. He died on the cross for you, for that, that debt of sin. He paid for that and wiped out your guilt. And in His resurrection, He proved that you have victory over sin and death and Satan and demons. And you remember that. And you remember now, I believe that, I'm going to live for God just for His glory. Just for His glory. So do you believe? Will you follow Him? Will you trust Him daily? Will you submit to Him and His Word? And I'll say for us, yes, we will. And we will. But remember this. You follow the Savior. You cherish the Gospel each and every day. And that's the pathway to victory. You stay on that track, that track, and you will be able to resist in the evil day. Let me finish, read for you 1 John chapter 5. Here, here's how John ended his epistle, 1 John 5.19. Talk about a reminder of what we need to remember daily. 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of God. Of the evil one. But we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. 
And we are in Him who is true, His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You remember that. You will be able to resist in the evil day. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You for this the study in Your Word. A little bit of a detour, but nonetheless, I, I pray it's been profitable for us to see what You really say about this unseen but yet very real world of angels and demons. Many are out there seeking to stumble us, seeking to tempt us, but we can't see them. We even have another enemy. Our own, our own flesh seeks to stumble and tempt us, Lord. I pray no matter what, we do not take them lightly, but we do not over-obsessed with them. Rather, we just focus on, on you, on your word. We let the positive truth of your word fill our minds each and every day. I pray for everyone here that they would really equip themselves more and more with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. They would know it, that they might take it up and put it on in that day. Teach us your word. May we submit to your word. Cherish it. That is our guard. It's our armor that we need all the time. We thank you for not leaving us unequipped, for giving us what we need. May we now persist to stand firm. And in all, we, we finish by just thanking you again for our Savior, who on that cross and in that resurrection, he claimed victory over Satan and over demons. This is a world we do not have to fear. We have victory in you. We rejoice in that. and want to live victoriously and effectively for you by trusting in you and your gospel. So we thank you for, for this time and our, our study together. In your name we pray. Amen.